welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Briogeo, Nancy Twine. Nancy, a former vice president at Goldman Sachs, tells me her very earliest memories of beauty all take place in the kitchen with her mother and grandmother, mixing their own beauty products using a KitchenAid. Nancy tells me that even as a child, she was aware that there were very few options in the beauty sphere for women of colour like herself. So mixing her own formulas allowed her to have some control rather than having to rely on whatever products were on the shelves. Nancy revisited this idea and this passion in 2010. She'd been working in a high-powered position in finance for upwards of seven years when her mother suddenly and tragically passed away, an incident that made Nancy really closely examine the way that she was living her own life. We owe it to ourselves to align our passions with our careers, she tells me. And so she revisited that early passion for beauty and began work on her own business, Briogeo. A clean, natural and inclusive hair care brand, Briogeo is now stocked globally, including in Mecca here in Australia, and reportedly hit something to the tune of $65 million US dollars in retail sales last year, less than six years after the brand's 2014 launch. In this conversation, Nancy and I discuss the perils of formulating hair care that's actually natural, her advice for new brand founders on securing investment, and why she has Alicia Silverstone in Clueless to thank for her first foray into entrepreneurship. You grew up watching your grandmother stretch, in inverted commas, products and you formulated some of your own beauty products in your kitchen with your mum. So I imagine that might factor into your answer here. But what is your very earliest memory of beauty? Yeah, definitely. So my my mom was one of eight children and she grew up in rural West Virginia And it was really her experience um, growing up with her mom that she learned about um, being able to stretch product and take natural ingredients like extracts and oils and enhance them um, to really create custom solutions for your own beauty routine. And when I was growing up, um, I didn't grow up in uh, West Virginia. I grew up in Long Island and my mom was a chemist. So she was a much more kind of sophisticated mixer of ingredients. And we would go to our local health food store and buy all different sorts of extracts and oils and butters and salts and sugars and take them home and literally in our kitchen with a KitchenAid mixer, we were mixing up our own body creams and face masks and hair masks. And what was really cool about it was that it gave us kind of control and it made us not rely on the products that were just on the shelf. And especially being a woman of color, um, I have textured hair, my hair is naturally curly. There weren't as many options um, back then as there were today. And if it wasn't for our ability to actually customize our products based on our own needs, we our beauty routines really would have suffered because of it, because things just didn't exist for what we needed. 
when you were doing that and creating these products, did you ever see yourself working in beauty or was this just kind of a fun way to pass the time? It's so funny that you asked that because I never, ever thought of myself working in beauty. And I don't know why I didn't make that connection back then. Maybe I kind of thought like, I don't know, can you really make a job out of working in beauty? Like, <laughs> I don't know that I really saw how big the opportunity was. And ultimately I ended up starting my career in finance, but working in beauty has been way more exciting and lucrative than working in finance. And like, who knew, right? <laughs> I think that's a pretty common answer though, because you think, oh, this, this couldn't possibly be a job. It's too fun. Even I didn't realize there was room in, I guess, the media space to do beauty. You kind of think, oh, it's fashion or politics. Right. It's, exactly. it's one of the other. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's, it's super exciting. And, um, yeah, it's funny because you think you've got your life figured out and then things turn and you end up doing something completely different. So yeah, to answer your question, I never saw myself in beauty. Well, I understand that you did want to be a pop star growing up before becoming something of an entrepreneur in school, thanks to the film Clueless. So I would love to hear more about that time. Yeah. So actually Clueless is where I got my entrepreneurial spirit because at the time um, there were all of these cool accessories and trends that emerged from the movie, but there was no place to actually buy it. Um, and so I started making feather pens, the same ones that were in the Clueless Amazing. movie. And everyone at school wanted one and you couldn't get any, any of them anywhere else. And so I had learned how to kind of craft them homemade and so that was kind of my first step into um, entrepreneurism and um, really kind of my first step into beauty was, you know, the childhood memories with my mom and kind of the merge between entrepreneurism and then crafting products ultimately is what kind of created the foundation for me realizing that like, wow, I could actually turn this Briogeo concept into a business. I love that. From school, though, from that early kind of taste of being an entrepreneur, you went on to study business at the University of Virginia. Was that choice driven by having experienced kind of, you know, a little bit of being an entrepreneur? What took you in that direction? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, back when I was kind of making things and selling them, you know, whether I was selling, making and selling jewelry at one point, I was making and selling clueless pens at one point. <laughs> Um, just the idea of being able to create something and then have someone like it enough that they wanted to actually spend money on it. And so that was kind of the first time that I really realized that like, wow, you can mix passion with, you know, sustainability from like a income perspective. And um, I knew that business was intriguing to me. And I loved the thrill of being able to transact and create things that people wanted. And when I was at university learning about finance, I was a finance major, I knew would help me ultimately just become a better business person. I mean, you mentioned that you were a finance major. Was that always the plan? Is that what you kind of had in your head, a career in finance while you were studying? Um, no, um, at least not my first couple of years. Um, I think what ultimately propelled that was um, I had done a, done a summer internship in finance at Goldman Sachs, and this was prior to 
in being a finance major. Um, I ended up doing a um, summer internship. And during that summer, I realized how much I didn't know about finance and business. I thought I knew a lot because I was, you know, making things and selling things, but there was so much more beyond business and finance than just that. So I thought, gosh, if I'm going to really learn this and really have a shot at becoming a good businesswoman, it seems like finance makes the most sense for me. So um, it was after my second year in college that I decided to establish a finance major. So then you finished studying and you ended up taking a role at Goldman Sachs after that fateful summer internship and eventually became a vice president. I know that you left after seven-ish years. How many years into that job, though, did you start to realize maybe it wasn't for you? Maybe you didn't love it as much as you would have liked to? Probably month one, to be honest with you. (laughs) But I will say a thing that was unique was that, you know, I joined Goldman at the start of that financial crisis. So in 2007, there were several banks that were going out of business. We had clients that went out of business. It was a very scary time. And I really started rethinking a lot. You know, did I make the right decision? It's really stressful. I'm working tons of hours. Um, But it was difficult because I left college with a lot of student loans. And as a 22-year-old, I had a lot of responsibility. So I couldn't just kind of say, oh, I don't like my job. I'm just going to quit it and figure something else out. I had, you know, things that I needed to kind of commit to. um, So I ended up sticking it out for a while. This might be a stretch, but were there any lessons that you took from working in finance that you find you're still applying to your work now? Um, Yeah, definitely. There's so many different things. I mean, um, I do think my experience working at Goldman has helped shape me as a businesswoman when it comes to Briogeo, having the confidence to negotiate. Um, There are some people who have gone their entire careers and have never had to negotiate before. Mm -hmm. Imagine starting a business and not being able to do that. Um, So that really helped me a lot because even though I was new to the industry, I knew that, hey, always always push back a little and and see what's possible, see what you can get. Um, Also to not taking no for an answer, kind of the flip side of that. Um, There were so many times at uh, Goldman during my career where we were met with no's on business deals and it was never like, oh, they said no, that's it. It's like, okay, they said no. Let's figure out how we can maybe structure this differently or present it differently, and then let's go back to them. So there are a lot of skills that sometimes you don't even think about as you're developing them that ultimately become you know, really good foundations for being able to succeed in the future. Um, and that's why oftentimes I do tell people that are passionate about entrepreneurism is, you know, don't, don't go at it too quickly, right? Sometimes taking a few years to get some experience in the corporate world can really help to shape you into a better entrepreneur. That's such sound advice. It was in 2010 that your mother tragically passed away, which I read was something of a catalyst for you to kind of look at how you were living your own life. Could you talk to me about that time and what that changed for you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you lose someone, um, suddenly it's not something you can prepare for. And it really does remind you that, you know, life can be short and we really owe it to ourselves to 
align our passions with our careers because we spend so much of our life working. I remember when I was at Goldman, I spent way more time with the person sitting next to me than my own family, which is crazy, right? Um, And so one of the things that I, I realized was that, you know, getting joy out of what you do um, is something that's really important. And I think we're all put on this earth to be able to find out what makes us happy, to figure out what our talents and skills are. And so I really committed to myself that I was going to figure out how to do exactly that. And that was a big turning point for me because it gave me a sense of fearlessness in a lot of ways. Um, And what I mean by that is being able to ultimately step away from a great paying job, a very secure job to take a risk and say, I'm going to try this whole passionate work thing and I'm going to leave my full-time job to chase a dream. And ultimately that's what I did. It is indeed. Can you talk me through the timeline here? At what point did you start to even think about launching your own brand? Yeah. So I would say within the year after my mom's passing, um, I was giving so much thought into how I was spending my time. And I knew that my current job working in finance was not going to be my future path. So um, shortly thereafter, that experience um, within a year is when I really started putting the wheels in motion for doing some business planning. I read that something called the Small Business Library was a really invaluable resource for you. What is this and what, what were your findings? Yeah, so the Small Business Library is a really wonderful resource in New York City where you can um, basically you know, use their systems to get access to research reports on different industries. Mm-hmm. And sometimes these research reports would cost thousands of dollars and you could access them for free, which is pretty amazing. And so as I was doing my business planning that I mentioned and, and researching, um, I was looking into a lot of what the analysts were saying about the future of the natural beauty industry. And there was so much being published that what had happened in food with this kind of shift towards natural and organic and low sugar and things like that were ultimately going to happen in its own way in beauty. And when people become educated and realize kind of what's good for them, it doesn't become a trend. It becomes a new way of living. And that was a similar kind of um, thought about what was gonna happen with beauty. Once people really kind of understood the dangers of certain ingredients and the fact that you could have effective beauty products that were non-toxic and not full of harsh or harmful ingredients, um, but performed well, um, that shift would be you know, a real one. So, um, that was one of the biggest things that I discovered from doing that research. When you were doing that research, was it always going to be hair? Um, you know, it was really looking at beauty and personal care as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but really where I saw the opportunity where really no one was doing anything and clean was within the hair category. And as I mentioned, I have naturally curly hair you know, finding products that worked for my hair type was quite a struggle growing up. So I had a personal connection to the category. And ultimately, that's what 
led me to focus on hair care specifically. It was four years between your mother's passing and Briogeo's launch. I would love to hear more about that time. Obviously, you did the research, identified the gap, but then how did you go about physically launching the brand? How did you, you know, find the right chemist, source packaging, even name the brand? I feel like there are all of these sort of moving parts that come into play here. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it took four years also because I was working a full-time job, so I really had to... I read that and I was like, oh my God, how do people do this? I just, I know. I know. I really had to balance my time. And so I just did things little by little. Um, You know, I researched and found designers to help me with my packaging. Um, I ended up finding a natural chemist to help me with my formulations. Um, I found a consultant who helped me, you know, write my business plan. And it was almost like this, um, just kind of ongoing discovery. It was like, you know, I'd pull back one discovery and or meet someone who could help me with this. And then it would allow me to do that. So I was just kind of, you know, going down my journey while at the same time kind of chipping away over the course of four years of actually getting my first four products developed and ready to sell. I would love to spend a bit of time on the formulation side of things because whenever I speak to founders of clean natural brands on this podcast, they've said that the hardest part is finding a lab that's actually happy to create in that natural space. So many of them will say, yeah, we can do that, but it would be cheaper and easier for us to do X, Y, and Z instead. Am I right in guessing that that was probably the most time consuming part for you as well? Oh, completely. It was really difficult. I, you know, I interviewed dozens and dozens of labs and chemists and so many people couldn't, or they told me that what I wanted wasn't possible and, or they didn't have the, the, you know, skills or capabilities to do what I needed. So it was certainly discouraging for a bit, but I kept at it. And like I mentioned before, when you're met with a no, you just, you know, try a different route until you get there. So what were your non-negotiables when you were developing the formulas and why were they so important to you? Yeah, so I had um, worked with a chemist to really identify, you know, what were the top most commonly used ingredients in hair care that had been associated with either health health or environmental concerns. And the six that were identified were silicone sulfates, parabens, phthalates, DEA, and synthetic dyes. And I made a commitment that when I launched Briogia, I would never use those six commonly used hair ingredients in any Briogia products, given the link either between, um, you know, body harm or environmental harm. And, you know, since then, there's a whole host of other ingredients that we don't include in Briogia products. But that six free promise is something that was true even before I launched Briogeo and that is still very much true today. I would love to talk about investment too because that's obviously something that comes into play when you're launching a brand. You were bootstrapping and self-funding all of this but sought a tiny bit of external investment towards the end of the launch period just to really help settle the nerves I suppose and put less strain on your own savings. How did you go about physically raising that money? Yeah, so it was a very small amount of money that I took, and it was from um, 
what they call an angel investor. So these are wealthy individuals who are fortunate enough to have some cash that they can kind of play with and they find business ideas that they believe in and, you know, they'll write you a check. Um, and so um, I was attending all sorts of angel investor summits where you get connected with angel investors. And um, that's how I was able to secure a little bit of funding to kind of get me through, you know, the first year or so. Um, but, you know, so much of what was used to fund Briogeo was, you know, my savings for my time working in finance. When you were going to these summits, do you have to do you have to pitch? I imagine that's a very difficult thing to do when you don't have a physical product there to show people. Yeah, you do. Um, it's really interesting that whole scene because it's a bit nerve wracking. It's I don't know if you all um, in Australia have the show Shark Tank. Yes, we do. <laughs> so it's a little like that, but it's a bit less intimidating. You oh, know, thank God. Yeah, so scary to watch. I know. I, I like cringe. I, I feel, you know, sad and, and nervous for people on that show when, you know, things don't work out. Um, but yeah, you know, that's the thing. These investors, they see so many business ideas and concepts that you've got to be kind of quick and know how to summarize your story, your point of difference, what makes you unique, you know, um, the future for growth in a very concise way that's also compelling. At the time that you launched Briogeo, and honestly, even today, there aren't really many brands in the hair care space that are marketing their products towards women with textured hair, which you've obviously talked about and you, you know, are in that category yourself. I know that inclusivity was really important to you. So how did you ensure that you were being inclusive with just four product SKUs on launch? There are brands with dozens upon dozens of products that still aren't inclusive, but you managed to do it with four. Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, and there was you know, a lot of thought that went into it. And basically the way that we configured the first four products is we had one shampoo. It was our Be Gentle, Be Kind green tea shampoo. That was for all hair textures and types. And then where we got specific to specific needs of our diverse customer base was with the conditioners. So there was a curl charisma conditioner for curly, wavy and coily hair. There was our blossom and bloom conditioner for volumizing. And then lastly, there was our don't despair pair deep conditioning mask for those that have dry or damaged hair. So within four products, we were able to really speak to the individual needs of a pretty diverse spectrum of, of hair textures and types. That's amazing. Now you mentioned that you were still working full time during this whole period was it when Sephora agreed to take on the brand? Am I right in saying that that's when you decided, okay, I can I can leave my job now? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, bringing on Sephora as a partner was such a huge milestone for this this brand, and it really gave me the opportunity to just kind of turn an idea or a fun project into a true business. And by that time, I had been working. Um, at Goldman in the same capacity for seven years. And so it was also time to do something different. So the stars really aligned from that standpoint. And how did you secure that Sephora launch? Because that is a big deal. They don't just pick up any brand and say, yep, 
we will launch you. Yeah, well, it's interesting because at the time, the hair care category at Sephora was so much smaller than it mm. is now. I think there were maybe like six or seven brands and now there are dozens. So we were doing something very different that didn't exist at Sephora from a clean ingredient and you know hair care for all perspective. Um, so we were really filling a void within their space that kind of made it a no brainer um, to bring us in because there just wasn't anything else like it. I would imagine that launching into a retailer as big as Sephora would change the scale on which you were operating. What elements of the business did that, you know, a purchase order of that size force you to look at or change as far as the way you were running things? Yeah, for sure. So um, it definitely um, caused a transition um, of, of infrastructure. So I used to, you know, kind of mail every order out of my apartment and when you go into a large retailer like Sephora, that just isn't sustainable. So it kind of quickly forced me to start putting in place infrastructure that a larger company would have, um, such as a warehouse and fulfillment center, um, and then also making some crucial hires to really help support the development of that relationship. So oftentimes when people kind of go from being really, really scrappy to having more structure, there are typically external forces like bringing on a Sephora that kind of just kickstart that journey. Yeah, sometimes you need that, that little push. Exactly. Okay, I can do this. <laughs> That's right. The brand is, of course, wildly successful now, hitting something to the tune of $10 million in revenue within the first four years. But what was the reception like immediately upon launch? Yeah, so we're a lot bigger than that, by the way, because yeah. we're now at seven. <laughs> so we're, we're multiples of that now, which I'm very um, fortunate um, for. And sorry, re- repeat that last part of the question. What was the reception like right on launch? Because I feel like sometimes it can take people a little while to to warm up, but it kind of seems like they embraced you straight away. Yeah, well, it definitely took time. So if you ask me what we did our first year, it would be a lot smaller than that. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> um, yeah, it took time. And also, too, that the prestige hair care category was still kind of in its infancy stages. So, you know, it took four years to get to that point, And then it took another three years to get to the point that we're at now. Um, but it just really requires a level of discipline with, you know, your marketing strategy, building relationships, coming out with key innovation that really excites the industry. And when you do those things consistently over time, you really do just start to build a pretty great momentum. The range has, of course, extended far beyond those first four initial products. How does the, de- product, the product development process sorry, work for you? How long does it take to see a product from conceptualization through to it being available for consumers? Yeah, um, it takes at least a year. Mm -hmm. sometimes a few years, depending upon the process. Um, We do try to do things as quickly as possible without sacrificing quality because we do prefer to be the first to market if we have a really good idea. We want to get it out before someone else does. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of planning that goes into the process, everything from formulation and testing and regulatory and claims and packaging. Um, And we now have a team, it used to be just me, but we now have a team that really supports me 
in the effort of really um, identifying opportunities and white space within the category and really creative ways to go about bringing out clean, effective formulas that meet those specific opportunity sets and um, needs of the client. You mentioned that you've got a team that are, you know, constantly helping you think of the next big thing. Is that the way that you prefer to develop products or is it that and kind of looking at what consumers are asking for, one or the other, bit of both? Well, that's so much of what my team does. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at all different places. They are looking at what our customers are asking for. They are looking at um, white space opportunities. They are asking me for inspiration. They're asking others at the organization for inspiration. So there's really kind of no limit to the different levers that we pull to come up with those great innovation ideas. You're now stocked in Mecca here in Australia as well as all over the world with retailers like Net-A-Porter, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, Revolve, just, just some small little websites. What are some of the big differences that you've seen between the ways that women from different regions approach beauty and more specifically approach their hair? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I will say that I remember when I first launched Scalp Revival, which was one of the first scalp-focused product lines mm. in premium hair care, this idea of the skinification of hair um, was more quickly received, actually, within some of our European markets and Asian markets than it was in the U.S., so it took a little bit longer for, I think, the consumer in the U.S. to start really making that link between um, skin health and scalp health and scalp health to hair health. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's really interesting too, because, um, you know, it really is such a foundational aspect of, um, getting your hair to the healthiest state, but the scalp is something that is oftentimes overlooked. So, um, there were certain regions that were a lot more receptive and already kind of knowledgeable about that concept than other regions were. You have sat at the helm of Briogeo for it would be close to seven years now. Over that time, what have been some of the biggest changes that you have seen within the beauty industry? Yeah, I think one of the biggest changes is just kind of how marketing has really transformed over the past seven years. Um, I remember when I started, a lot of the big beauty subscription boxes were just getting started and that was really exciting. And then the beauty YouTubers had a big moment. Mm -hmm. Color Cosmetics had a huge moment. And now people are learning about um, beauty on TikTok. You know, so it's almost like every year there's something new and things kind of change so, so much, um, which is why it's so important to really always have your pulse on what's happening. I still haven't downloaded TikTok. I feel like I'll just fall down a rabbit hole and that'll be it. I won't speak to anyone for another 12 months. <laughs> Probably. Um, reluctant That's to embrace it. <laughs> I know, same. It's funny. I have it downloaded on my phone, but I hardly go on. Um, and part of that is you're right. I just, I feel so kind of already overloaded from the channels that I am on, like Instagram, that learning something new just just feels overwhelming. <laughs> Good, not just me then. So those are the things that we have seen change. What changes do you think that we can expect to see from the beauty industry over the next couple of years? Yeah, well, I, I certainly don't think that clean is going anywhere. It's certainly here to stay. And I think that it's becoming the expectation 
um, from the beauty consumer. So for brands that maybe didn't launch clean or have never been clean, I do think that there's going to be a real shift towards, you know, even reformulating, really rethinking people's, you know, business model um, from that perspective, because um, again, it's not a trend and similar to what we've seen in food, right? Like a lot of these bigger food brands have really changed a lot of their ways. They've reduced sugar, they found organic alternatives, they've shortened their ingredient list to get rid of a lot of the fillers. I really think that it's happening across the board and it's going to continue to impact how brands formulate. That's an exciting time. My final question, Nancy, what is next for Briogeo? Oh man, um, I feel like there's so many things that are next, but one of the things that I'm so excited about is how do we bring the success that we've built in the U.S. with Briogeo to more international markets, which is why I couldn't be any more thrilled about our launch into Mecca. It has been so, so exciting. And unfortunately, due to COVID, I haven't been able to travel. Otherwise, we probably would be doing this in person. Um, but it's amazing what we've been able to accomplish virtually. And um, I know that the Mecca consumer is such a incredible one. And um, the Mecca brand too um, is, is so phenomenal. And the storytelling and education that they do on brands um, really gives me the confidence that we're going to be really well positioned to be a big hair care name in Australia. So I'm really looking forward to watching that unravel. Um, in addition to um, tackling new international areas for us to really expand our brand and meet the needs of more consumers globally. I feel confident that that's going to happen. There's so much buzz here already about it. Oh, I'm so excited to hear that. That was Nancy Twine, founder and CEO of Briogeo, which you can find on Instagram at Briogeo. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast. And thank you for joining me. Thank you.